A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's what I love about my guest on today's show. She is never afraid to make her audience uncomfortable in the name of comedy. I feel bad for the amount of true crime that I consume, but to be fair, women, we don't watch true crime. Technically, we study it to make sure, <laughs> to make sure we don't end up on it. Um, and true crime is kind of feminist. It's the only time the entertainment industry will take a chance on an unknown female lead. <laughs> This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and I am so thrilled to welcome Jenna Friedman back on the podcast today. Jenna was one of our very first guests on this show all the way back in April of 2019 when she was promoting her adult swim show, Soft Focus, which remains one of my favorite things ever. And fun fact, hers was actually the second interview we ever recorded after our premiere with Sarah Silverman. But back then, Jenna was just a hilarious comedian, former Daily Show field producer, and all-around delightful person. Now, she's also an Oscar nominee. Jenna was among the several writers nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay last year for the Borat sequel. So I was very eager to have her back on to talk about that project, including how this podcast made an unexpected impact on her very first day. Now, she's about to premiere her latest series, Indefensible, which combines her deep love of true crime with her true passion of making interview subjects squirm. As expected, the show is fantastic. So let's get into it. Here's me with Jenna Friedman. Well, welcome back on the show. I'm very excited to have you back on. You were one of our... I was looking back. I think you were episode six of this podcast, and now this is episode 127, I believe. So we really... It's been a journey. Wow. (laughs) Thank you. I think we kind of have to start here, uh, which is you told me something very funny about your very first day in the writer's room of a Borat subsequent movie film, which had something to do with this podcast and uh, our interview. Do you remember what I'm talking about? I do. I do. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. No, because I don't think I talked about the writer's room because we've had, we have ironclad NDAs. Well, maybe when something then. (laughs) No, yeah, but that, so you had so kindly called me like what you say, because it's so silly, but Um, I think it was the feminist Sasha Baron Cohen. Mm -hmm. And then it (laughs) came out like my first day working in his room. (laughs) And he like saw it. It's like, oh my God. What did he he think about that? I don't know. I think Nicole, his assistant, saw it. He didn't he didn't mention it if he did see it, I think. I don't know. I'm I'm sworn to secrecy, so maybe he did. Are you still sworn to secrecy on all things Borat? Or can we talk a little bit? You've talked about it. Yeah, we did a lot of press for the Oscars. So I can talk about it. Yeah, the Oscar. Yeah, also congratulations on the Oscar nomination. That was pretty cool, right? Thank you. It was really cool. <laughs> it was really cool, and uh, I can't believe the movie even happened. I can't believe no one got murdered while making it. <laughs> and so, yeah, just uh, then getting nominated was like, wow, what? A, but then also, my I was just kind of like dead from like a year of 
being inside and it was like hard to feel excitement, but that was exciting. <laughs> yeah. Was it kind of scary to like go out for the first time and it'd be at the Oscars? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> seemed like the vibe was was kind of uh strange in that in that room the kind of smaller oscars this past year with the you know it's just seems like i don't know maybe you didn't you hadn't been to previous oscars i imagine so you don't know how it was different but it seems like it was different yeah i think i mean it's just an honor to be vaccinated (laughs) (laughs) that's all i was thinking at the time i was like i can't believe i'm vaccinated and uh it it was cool um but yeah, it was also surreal. Yeah. Yeah. And also um, like you knew that like we've all had such a tra- traumatic year, like the last thing anybody wants is to like see like their like their friend at the Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> I was just yeah. like very cognizant of like and also like what the Oscars are and just kind of like this like ostentatious display of like everything wrong with our world. And so I think we were all I think <laughs> a lot of people there were aware of that. Um, uh, we, especially cause it was like downtown, a lot of the Borat writers, we donated to the downtown women's center and we we're just, let's just, you know, try to pay it forward in any way we can, but it was weird. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I want to talk about your new show, obviously, before we get off of Borat, I don't know how much you are allowed to talk about, but since you have talked about it a little bit, um, you know, I think the one scene that really stood out to a lot of people was that pregnancy crisis center scene, which, um, you know, I think I'm thinking about even more these days with the the news. Is that so? That's something that that started uh, with an idea that you had, or where did that scene particular come from? Sure, I just want to say if there's anyone listening who is in Texas, you can still get an abortion there. You just have to call it stand your ground, and then you'll be able to <laughs> legally justify terminating the zygote, whatever. Anyway, that's good um, legal advice. Thank you. I have a lot of legal advice now because I've been spending the past six months trolling defense attorneys. But um, (laughs) your question was about the pregnancy crisis center scene. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing I'll say that I haven't really talked about, it's just like, you know, I, I also helped out with the field department. So I got to kind of help produce that scene. And um I remember at one point being a little nervous just about how we went about it, which I won't get into too much, but then thinking like the worst case scenario, the news comes out and it's like comedians, you know, trick people who trick pregnant women. (laughs) Okay. We'll be okay. I have a baby inside me Mm -hmm. and I want to take it out of me. Mm -hmm. Right. She wants it out now, please. Right. I Can mean, you take it out? No, we cannot. What you say, take it out. Yes. You end that life. That, that life will die. Well, it's already dead. It's not living. No. It is a living, breathing life that God has created. I don't think he's breathing. We can show you that it's breathing. I feel bad because I was the one who put the baby in her. You don't need to feel bad. I was just trying to give my daughter pleasure, and next thing I know, there's a baby inside her. Mm-hmm. You keep calling her your daughter. Yes. Okay. Is he your father? Yes. This yes. is your daughter? Yes. Okay. 
Yeah, those places are awful. And there are more of them than there are like actual abortion clinics in our country. And forever, I've been trying to figure out how to talk about them. And I can't believe like we were able to get it in that movie. And Sasha was so supportive. And I, I just like also the period dance, you know, like I those are two. <laughs> that was another good one. <laughs> it was just like, I can't believe after being in comedy for 15 years and like I think my generation of female comics, like we've just been like every generation has like different stuff that they go through. But I, I just remember like periods were like the the just the third rail. Like you just don't go there. Don't go there. I think because none of us went there or we were like taught to not go there, it's just been bottling up. And so <laughs> to be able to like do a scene like that in a like a movie that big. I really wish we had all had the experience of watching that movie in a theater. That was like, that was like the one thing like about that film. Cause it's such a collective experience watching that. And I wish I would have loved to have seen people for the first time, like see that scene in a theater. Like I would love to have a fly on the wall where like just watching men's faces <laughs> and Maria <laughs> just dances with a you know, blood rig around. Yeah. I mean, I still think about the first Borat movie as one of my all-time best theater experiences. So yeah, it's really a shame that that this one we didn't get to see in theaters. But I have been able to watch it repeatedly on Amazon Prime, so that's a plus. So one more thing on the pregnancy crisis center scene: did it? You said you know the worst case scenario, but did it play out better than you expected, or worse, or how in terms of what you? Because you don't, you never know how it's going to actually go when you are there. Yes, but like so. You know, the J- Jason Walliner directed the film. He's maybe one of my favorite directors. Yeah, we um, had him on the podcast uh, earlier this year, and he's he's amazing. The best. And so you know you're in trusted hands. Sasha is, like, pretty much the best at what he does. So I had no, like, I, I knew that the scene would go that way. And also, like, I remember at one point in the room, we were, like, talking about it and talking about the joke about, like, the incest someone had said, like, there's no way that they're going <laughs> to say that. And just, you know, these places, you know how they are. They're zealots. And so it's like, yeah, they're going to be okay with incest. And I think that the guys in the room are just people who didn't know about these centers, kind of didn't, didn't really get that, that it was as bad as it is. And that was what was so exciting to me about that segment is just showing people on a large scale that these places exist, that they operate, they don't. And, you know, part of the pitch to book them, hopefully I'm not speaking out of turn, but in 2018, the Supreme court allowed these places to exist. And so on the phone with them, it was like, you've already won the Supreme court case to operate out of the shadows. Like, let's take back our narrative and shine a light. (laughs) We We do. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm a field producer at heart. Um, (laughs) but that was, you know, that was partly like why they agreed to do it because they don't need to hide. And that's, what's so scary. What they do is so awful and, and they're allowed to do it and it's only getting worse. And so, yeah, that scene was like when it ended up in the script and when we were like, I knew, cause there's so much you pitch and there's so much that like we shoot and it doesn't end up in the movie. So when it ended up in the script and then when we were going to shoot it and then they actually had called me to like help with the, to like, you know, help get that scene into production. Cause I, it, you know, I, I was in Edinburgh doing my show during part of production. And then I came back 
it was so cool that that whole thing happened the way it did. Like that, I can't believe like it it happened and that the movie happened and and that you were nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> it's crazy. It's great. But I mean, like, honestly, though, the Oscar, like after the adrenaline of everything else, I wasn't at the gun rally in Seattle. But I mean, if you watch some of the footage of yeah, like the behind the scenes, I mean, the whole movie, every moment was just like. Uh, uh. And also, I mean, like the team of producers on that movie, the field producers, they were all so good. Like um, there's this woman, Ashley Underwood, and she I mean, the 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 debutante ball, like what she did to make that happen. These field producers were like so good. And they're I've never worked with like people like that who just I mean, they're is so much I want to say, but like, if, if, <laughs> like if she could get like an Oscar for like acting cool and calm while <laughs> was breaking loose, like I just would nominate Ashley for that. Because. Yeah, well, I yeah, Jason told me all about how he got uh, chased and almost beat up after that, that he was scene. With her. Okay, he was with her then, and um, yeah, I mean, Jason was running around with like blonde hair, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> pretending to be Christian. Uh, it was wild. Yeah, that's insane. So, I mean, obviously, you're you've done other projects that have tried to make comedy out of uh, the subject of abortion. You have your whole abortion portion in your uh, 2016 special. And I don't think abortion's even a political issue as much as it is a branding issue. In Texas, for example, if instead of abortion, if we just called it fetus hunting, <laughs> people would be so excited to take the kids to Planned Parenthood and go fetus hunting on the weekend. <laughs> Same with Florida. If we called abortion early retirement. <laughs> done and done, you know? Alabama. I have one for every state. <laughs> if in Alabama, if we called abortion the death penalty, <laughs> the whole state would vote for it. The whole state would vote for it. Alabama State Bird is the electric chair. <laughs> I assume that the the latest news out of and the the Supreme Court stuff out of Texas did not take you by surprise because you you've had a lot of prescient uh, jokes about this stuff actually and non jokes <laughs> and, and non jokes moments of like dead air on live TV. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I was looking back. I think you had a you had a tweet after uh, Scalia's death predicting the the end of Roe v. Wade. And I think that was, uh, you were ahead of the game on that as well. Did you, did you find that? Because I delete all my tweets. <laughs> oh, I saw it somewhere. Maybe it written in a story somewhere. <gasps> I delete them all. Um, no record. Yeah, no. I, when I was at the Daily Show, I might've already told you this, so I don't want to repeat myself, but I was really trying to get content related to really like the abortion wars on the show. And we did do a segment. We ended up doing one about a fetus lawyer, but there were like, I may have already told you this anecdote, so I apologize. But at one point, I think somebody had typed my name and abortion into like the listserv and like 42 pitches of 42 different stories. <laughs> Just because it was like, so in the zeitgeist then 2012 to 2015, if you were following it at all, you were like, we are so screwed. This is bound to happen. And then when the election happened, you're just like, there's no way, there's no way that, you know, and it's not, it's not, I think now like the hypocrisy is so obvious that it's like hard to even talk about because it's like that the people that are making policies to make women's lives less safe, they're not pro-life. You know, if they were pro-life, they would support like vaccinations. It's like 
funny the overlap of like anti-vax pro-life people. Yeah, exactly. And and the hypocrisy has never been more clear. So well, and Ted Cruz uh, tweeting my body, your body, your choice now about yeah, NBA players. Like, <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about your your new show because it is um, I really enjoyed. I got to see the f- uh, two episodes. I don't know if they're the first two, but um, I saw two episodes um, of Indefensible, and um, so it's kind of like your your follow up to Soft Focus, which I also really really loved. And I wondered if it was kind of inspired at all by that um, material that the stand up set that you did on Conan about true crime that was, I know was part of a larger piece. Is that sort of the seed of where this this show came from? So exactly, yeah. I. I did not uh, want to venture into the true crime space. It wasn't something I thought about. That credit goes to the Sundance channel and AMC. They saw my Conan set and they were like, we are building out a true crime franchise. Do you think that you would want to develop something with us? And I was like, I don't know if, I don't know if that's possible. And then COVID happened and I was like, anything's possible. (laughs) Oh, you want me to do anything? (laughs) Anything's possible now. Anything's possible. And so we were developing the show. The first episode was about Alana Steinberg. That is a story close to my heart as a Jewish woman. Uh, Yeah, you don't hear it. When I was watching, I was like, you know, I I don't remember seeing a a Jewish true crime story before this in 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 quite that way. We're heading to Via de la Vida, the street on which Alana was murdered. Husbands killing their wives is sadly nothing new. Is that it? Oof. It feels kind of so sad. But this case struck a particular chord with me because the mother got away with it. I would definitely talk to the neighbors if everyone in Arizona didn't have guns. And then Dr. Blinder came up as a character in this story. And then I did. He's the, he's the Twinkie defense guy, right? Twinkie defense. And then also other cases where he's had like expert witness testimonies that are just so, I don't know what the word is, like clinically misogynistic. Like <laughs> just really, like she was asking to be murdered. She, you know, it, it just, he was this character that was so, um, I wanted to talk to him. And uh, so I did. I talked to him for this kind of pilot presentation. And that interview is pretty much what you see in the show. And then after that interview, and after we edited that interview, I, I thought, you know, maybe we really do have a show here if we can, if we can talk about real cases, but then kind of like the, you know, I don't want to say too much because I don't, I don't want to, you know, not be able to make this show, but it's like, you know, if you can just talk to people, who are in positions of power or or who have like perpetuated injustice and just kind of like hold them accountable in the smallest way or by just kind of like showing other people how they are and letting them kind of speak for themselves. And, and also like, you know, teaching people what expert witnesses are and like how trial law works. I think a lot of us don't really think about the criminal justice system until we're in it. And we, we hear the term expert witness. So we think, oh, that person just knows what they're talking about and is totally forthright. When in reality, like incentives across the board are misaligned and there are shady defense attorneys and shady prosecutors. And 
all sorts of things that go into criminal trials and their outcomes. And so that was kind of one of the things that I got excited about with the potential of like what the show could be. I feel like for anyone, you know, listening to us talk about this, they're probably wondering like, well, how is this a comedy show? It's um, not. Because I mean, it's, it's not a comedy show. It's by <laughs> yeah. no means a comedy show, but you know, I am a comedian and I'm entering this genre and I'm, 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 doing the best I can with the resources that I have. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think there is a lot of comedy in it. So I'm, I'm interested that you say, you know, it's not a comedy show. Is that how it was originally pitched or how, what they did? They not want it to be a comedy show or how do you feel like that conversation was at the, at the beginning? They have been so collaborative. I think all of us at the beginning were like, we're literally creating a new genre, a hybrid genre and I try, I definitely tried. I made some big swings that you're never going <laughs> to see because I deleted that footage. <laughs> but like, you know, I think, I think as you meet the families and get into the cases, there was, I don't, I don't know if you saw the episode about gay panic, but the family of the victim, they were so kind and loving. And I, and I met, there are these like triplets that were the victim's I think like niece and nephews and they were like eight and I was talking to them because, you know, we're there with the family for hours when you're not even on camera. And the kids were like, you're a comedian. Like, are you going <laughs> to like make fun of our like dead uncle? But they didn't say it like that. And you're <laughs> yeah. just, ah, <laughs> oh, God. and you just want to make sure that you honor them and that you tell the story from their point of view. And that if they watch it, they're going to not feel bad that they were part of it. And that, you're trying to in this world where they're never going to get their loved one back and they're never going to get justice because at that point it's like, what is justice? Like you're at least like giving them some catharsis and, 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 you know, so, so it's hard for me to say it's a comedy show because I've, as I've met all these people and they're real people. And I think like, you know, when you're doing a true crime podcast, it's easier to, to get into like jokey terrain because you're not sitting down with people who've experienced like, more trauma than you ever have. But yeah, I also, because I'm a comedian and because I like, you know, enjoy so much trying to make light out of the darkness, like there are moments of levity for sure. And I definitely like in the cold opens, just try to try to have some light. <laughs> <laughs> this is something we talked about with the daily show. Cause it was like that whole question of, do people know that they're being made fun of a little bit on that show and the field pieces. And, you know, you said when we talked that, you know, by the time you got to the daily show, it had been on for so long that there was no pretending that it was anything else besides a comedy show. Do you feel like when you are approaching people on a show like this, do they, do they have any sense that it, that there is a comedy element to it? Or do they sort of think that they're on like a very serious, you know, America's most wanted kind of show. So the production company told everybody as I protested for them not to, <laughs> I worked at the daily show and that was, and to their credit, like that's what, that's why, you know, it, they, um, they did that. And so the show, uh, I don't think anybody was really like hoodwinked. I think that there were, there were a couple people I, I have found even with self-focus, some of your friendliest interviews, meaning the people that you're just trying to get information from that you're not trying to like, you know, get a, get a, I, I hate to say gotcha, but the non-gotcha interviews, <laughs> yeah. typically those end up being the people that are the most sensitive. This happened quite a bit. 
where you are like, oh, this, this is going to be an easy interview. This person's going to be totally cool. And then they're like completely closed off and mad at you. And you're like, I just wanted to talk to you about this topic. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas like the people who are like, I'm going to say, gotcha. Sorry. People that the more confrontational interviews, sometimes those people are so, are so in their own orbit that they're like, that was great. You want to get a beer? And you're like, oh, <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> Yeah, so it, it's interesting. But in this show, I mean, we we were as responsible as we could be in terms of the production, and and I think you know people understood, particularly like the victims' families, and also the attorneys. I think understood like they all had my name in advance. They could Google me if they wanted. There were no like surprises. Yeah. So you you talk in that Conan said about how you you know you really are like a, a true crime fan um, in a sense. Is that true? Do you have what's your relationship like to the whole true crime industrial complex? I mean, I wouldn't say fan. I'm I have kind of like especially after working on, on this, I, I watch it less. I also see how the sausage is made in a different way. So a lot of it, I just kind of can't watch. There are some things that I do watch that like I, The Ripper on Netflix was a really interesting series. Episode three gets into like the culture, the culture around like why the killer was allowed to be, you know, how it took so long for them to catch him and the hubris of the police department and the misogyny in like Yorkshire at that time. And that to me was the most interesting part of that series. And that's the most interesting part of this genre everybody's watching true crime way more than comedy. I would say like the demographic of people who consume true crime is like, I don't know what percentage to, like, is it five times more? Is it 50 times? Like, I don't even know. I should know, but a lot more people than anybody who would watch, especially my comedy. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, and so you're kind of in the same way that was self-focused. I was like, Oh, here are these guy gamers who watch adult swim. I'm going to like meet the they're at. I think, show is like you're like this genre that everybody's watching and and these people are going to be on juries and these people vote how do i meet them where they're at and and give them content that they want to watch but also say something like hey maybe don't vote for people who don't support the violence against women act yeah yeah um I was curious what your take on the whole, um, you know, there's a sort of a new conversation happening about the missing white woman syndrome and the, around the Gabby Petito case. Um, have you been following that much? And what do you, what do you make of that whole uh, sort of revived debate? Yeah. So uh, we were actually talking about it with episode four of our show is really, really tragic. I mean, they all are, but one of the themes in it was just kind of like, you know, um, how marginalized women, women of color are ignored. Sex workers are ignored by when they go missing or indigenous women, when they disappear, when they're murdered, the media doesn't pick up um, their stories. And so then to kind of see this, this case, how it happened and um, the media's response, it was really interesting because it really is like a kind of shift happening, but at the same time, um, Gabby's story is tragic in so many ways. Her killer hasn't been brought to justice. If her, if, if Brian Laundry goes to trial, now I sound like a hipster Nancy Grace, but if Brian, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm fully comfortable. Feminist being. Sasha Baron Cohen or hipster Nancy Grace. Okay. 
<laughs> if he goes to trial, he may not be convicted. I mean, this is the Nancy Grace part, but after the series, like if you don't have a witness, if you don't have like, if the body's been decomposing and you don't have like signs of whatever on it, like, and you can't prove that he killed her. I hate to say he's doing like everything right in terms of what <laughs> should do to not go to prison for their crimes. The other thing that we're not talking about as much, I think, is just the idea of like the cops um, and their role in this. Like, I think a lot of people have been saying, like, you know, the cops have a hard time recognizing signs of domestic violence. It's like, no, they they know them. <laughs> they see it from the other side. It's like, how do you train a police force to like recognize signs of domestic violence? Is, do you just go like, hey, if you see a woman who looks at you like your wife? Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> That's good. Just working some material in there. It's okay. Arrest that guy. It's totally a new joke. <laughs> but it's like real. It. Like they put Brian up in a hotel. They made Gabby sleep in her car. They like you know the uh, there are good police. Okay, uh, I've never sounded more like a white lady saying that. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> there is also like a domestic violence problem in the police force that they are not like, addressing. You know, like there was this one statistic from the 90s that said like 40%, which is crazy, but they're they're not like looking inward to fix it. So it's like, how do you have public trust if so many people in your department are abusers? Coming up, Jenna looks back on her definitive interview with the late John McAfee and gamely entertains my questions about whether she believes he actually died in prison this past summer. 
Well, that's the, that's the question, right? Look, that's the big question. I have DMs from him that I'm thinking of minting into NFTs. <laughs> Are you still getting DMs from him would be the question. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Um, yeah, he, I had a place for him in my heart. I wish I didn't, but he was and also <laughs> like, do I think he killed himself? I mean, it's the most libertarian way to go. So yeah, sure. Um, it was kind of crazy to see your interview with him really resurface after his death and everyone kind of um, pointing to it as, you know, this was the definitive John McAfee interview. I don't know if that's what you imagined when you originally set, decided to, to travel to see him. Let's talk about McAfee 2.0. What's that? You now. I would call it 400.0 or something. I mean, I have reinvented myself, but you call it too. That's fine. That, that would be the newsman's perspective. Newsperson. Newsperson. What does that mean? Uh, women also work in the news. So newsman is kind of reductive. I know, but listen, you need, to, you need to cut me just a little slack because number one, I am 72. You don't look it. You look like you're in your mid-40s. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, well, gosh, in that case. <laughs> well, I'm going to call it news lady. Well, that's also condescending. But you'd kind of, you did stay in touch with him pretty like consistently since yeah, you first sure. met him, right? I mean, and you would post the DMs on uh, Instagram, <laughs> which are hilarious always. Um, how do you explain, you know, why he continued to talk to you and and sort of did he did he realize that you were making fun of him sometimes? Yeah, I mean, he's really smart. As dumb as he is in a lot of ways, he's really smart. And I always, you know, like he is like an alleged murderer and an alleged uh, was, I guess. Mm -hmm. No, you're um, using present tense, which is again going to feed the conspiracy theories. I know, but you know, there's so much crazy out there, and I mean, my vibe from him, what, and I could be wrong, but I, he was an eccentric character, and I never felt unsafe trolling him. I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so, are you? Have you been? Uh, you've been back to performing some stand-up now, or how's how's that going? Tiniest bit. I'm trying to take elements from Miscarriage of Justice that I wasn't able to like tape before all the COVID stuff happened and uh, build a new hour. Yeah. Is there sort of a, uh, you know, cause your other hours have sort of had themes in some ways. Is there a theme? Can you guess? <laughs> Can you guess? <laughs> the theme is? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of stuff I've like learned working on this show, but um, you know, I think the danger with a lot of comedy that I do with the political comedy is it does have an expiration date. Also people are so exhausted by it. I'm exhausted by it. So it's like, so I think I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find ideas that are more evergreen to explore. And also I have a new joke I really like about like safety latches and trunks of cars and just how far we've come, you know, like, I think we look at like our society right now and it's like, how do we ever get anything done? So then you look at the things that we've actually got done and, 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 and like celebrate them. And, um, but yeah, I mean, we're in such like a, it feels like an unprecedented time. And I just kind of, I listened to like an article on autumn or something the other day about, I think it was about like Trump maybe running again, or I don't know what it was, but I just like, I'm like, Oh, we're back there. Cause we had like a small little respite, but now it's like, Oh my God, like 2024 is coming up. Like all right right after 2021. And yeah, I feel like even, even the Gabby Petito story was like used as an example of, look, people will read about something else on the internet besides Trump. Yeah. People love depressing. white women. I will say people <laughs> love white women as long as we're dead. <laughs> Quote me. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I think I, I hear a lot of male comics specifically on one, I'm not going to name 
just like rail on white women and Mm -hmm. specific amount of misogyny as like a white guy comic railing on white women. Like all, all, you know, I, the other day I had a, a white lady Lyft driver who was an anti-vaxxer and I had to run out of her car and like, I get it on Twitter. Yeah. The Karen stuff, the Karen stuff. I totally, um, I totally, I'm right there with you, but I, I don't know. It's hard to talk about, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think like the larger takeaway from a case like Gabby's is like, yeah, the media is obsessed with like, you know, white women's murders and like, can that translate to the media being activated to give a shit about other women? Hopefully can it translate to people caring about not letting women get murdered? I don't know. (laughs) Like, I hope so, but I don't know. But they only the care. Part. They only care after the murder happens. They only care after the murder because look at so many of like the people that we put in power. So I think that's that's like what I would love people to give a shit about: women in general not getting murdered, people in general not getting murdered. I know it sounds really. Uh, <laughs> You're um, really taking a taking a brave uh, anti-murder stance, Jen. But you know what? Like it sounds. I know you're making. <laughs> I know you're making no. fun of me, but like, look at the Violence Against Women Act. Like, why has it not been passed? It's mm-hmm. like, it's like, how is anti-murder political? So I think the when you were on this podcast last time, we weren't doing our our new kind of speed round at the end. Um, so I want to run through some of these. It's called the first laugh. And so it's just about different firsts in your career and your in your life. Um, so starting with, do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid growing up? Um, <laughs> or or one. My mom used to tell. My mommy's my mom is probably my comedic muse. And she would say things that people would laugh at, and then I would just repeat them. And mm-hmm. this is a it's not funny at all. But my mom thought it was funny that I I grew up in a small town. There were three elementary schools. My sister went to one, I went to another, and our house was zoned for the third. And my mom would like tell people that and think it was funny. So I would <laughs> eat it and think it was funny. Like you know, and I had a, I had a really bad, I still have a little bit of a sibilant S which I try to, I, my voiceovers in the show, it sometimes comes out and I get made fun of for it online. And one time a YouTube commenter on like self-focus was like, do you guys realize like how much she's accomplished with such a bad speech problem? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Oh my God, that's your takeaway. <laughs> but, um, when I was little, I couldn't say R words. So I didn't really talk a lot because every time I did, I would get made fun of. I'd be like, yo, a dork. I remember getting made fun <laughs> of for like, call, like calling someone who was making fun of me a dork. And I was like, oh, a dork. And then everybody like made fun of me. So I didn't tell a lot of jokes. <laughs> when I did, they were probably from something my mom said that she thought was funny. Um, what about, do you remember the the very first time that you got on stage to, to perform stand-up and what that was like? Yeah, I had been doing improv a little bit. I was like in classes studying for my anthropology, for my paper in anthropology. But then I did stand up at, I want to say like, it was in Chicago. I'm, it was an open mic on a Monday. I think TJ Miller was actually hosting the mic. And I had this bit that I had written about being like arrested for public urination and being a sex offender. It was like a hacky joke, but it was like in the zeitgeist. A friend of mine worked for the alderman and was like, actually like, she had told me about like these people getting like on the registry and that she was like trying to like undo it. And I thought that was so funny. So I wrote this joke and I got on stage to tell it and I, I just drew a blank Oh and man, completely. And then I remember like TJ being like, okay, <laughs> 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 no, 
all had like three, it was like a three minute, like Monday. Yeah. Open. Very, very quick. Uh, yeah. Um, what about the, the first joke that you told on stage that you felt like really worked and you could keep going back to and, and really connected with an audience, just a, a joke that you, that really worked. Well, that joke, my first stand-up joke. <laughs> when you yeah. remembered it. <laughs> What? When once you remembered it? Once I remembered it, yeah, it was so hacky, but people really liked it. I mean, I got, I did it at a Bringer show at the Broadway Comedy Club. I think it, it, when it was the Improv, and I got like an Aspen audition off of it. I was a month into into doing stand up. It's like one of those things where that you're like, oh, this is easy. Fifteen years later, like I still like don't make a living primarily from stand up, um, <laughs> but I was like, oh, stand up. That'll be easy. And uh, that joke did really well. I got into like Chicago's funniest person contest off that tape, Hannibal One. And I think that was like 2007. And then Bert Haas at Zanies booked me. And under my bio, he was like, like Jenna Friedman will tell you how like the funny sides of being a sex offender. And I was like, mm. <laughs> that's not what I'm, <laughs> that wasn't what I was going for. Mm-mm-mm. And so, <laughs> and so I just stopped telling that joke forever. <laughs> but that was like the, fir- the first like joke that I sat down and was like, I'm going to write this and this is going to be my callback. And it was like very structured that I got a lot of mileage off of that. Probably more than I've ever gotten off of a joke since. <laughs> what do you remember about the very first piece that you got on The Daily Show as a as a field producer? So I got my like trial piece on, um, which was about the election. It was kind of, it was a very funny premise. It, I didn't write the premise, but it was basically like um, uh, every election they do a piece the night before about voters who are still undecided. Third election cycle, the joke was that everybody in the piece were from previous pieces about undecided <laughs> but um the f- first piece after that i think i've talked about it was a piece i did about women in the wait was it the first one after that women in the military with sam b it was like one of my first pieces and panetta had lifted the ban on women in combat halfway through and then the piece just became we had to re we had to like basically recut it the night before because we had to have it on air a lot sooner like usually the pieces took like three weeks to get from like idea to air this one was like a weekend and we were in the middle of production and it was like me and Sam B and I had been like such a fan of Sam's and like forever. And I, I had to downplay, like I'm, she's still one of my all time favorites. So like when I was like working with her, it was like really hard to be like, I'm not a super fan. I'm not <laughs> um, but we made that piece and it was like, and the, you know, there are so many jokes in it that were like just so specifically like female that we got to do. And it was such a powerful, cool piece. So yeah, still one of my favorites from that, from working there. Last week, Defense Secretary Leon Panetta made military history when he lifted the ban on women serving in combat. Immediately, objections were raised. There is a difference in the physicality of women and men. It's a terrible idea. You're going to have uh, the sex assault problems. People are going to die. Author and military expert Kingsley Brown. Women in combat uh, positions are a threat to military cohesion. Uh, it's not clear that men can actually bond with women the way they bond with other men. So women can disrupt bromance in Almost. combat zones. Almost by definition. So we talked a little bit about your more recent Conan set that was all about true crime. What do you remember from their, your late night stand-up debut, which I believe was also on Conan? That was the Charlottesville uh, kind of inspired set, which was not a few months after after that. I was nervous. I actually had, think, okay, so my first manager, 
who had fired me like a month before I got Letterman was actually at the taping with another client. And I remember being like, wow, like this feels so full circle. And I was thinking about that and I was nervous to perform. And, um, and then, yeah, I mean, JP Buck, Conan's booker, like really, I gave him a special thanks in this episode too, because because of that first set, like that's how I got a writing job for Roseanne for that one day I wrote for Roseanne. Um, <laughs> And then because of the second set, I, I, that is what, that is what inspired like Sundance to take a chance on me for this true crime show. And also like, I mean, just like that network, like, I can't believe how collaborative I'm not just like singing their praises. Cause I want to do another, another season. I'm just <laughs> saying like, they took such a risk and they were so supportive all along the way on like all these creative levels that I was just like floored by. They were really, I really felt like um, AMC and Sundance like had our backs and was like really listening to like kind of, you know, how, what I wanted to do and what I wanted people to take from, from these episodes. Maybe in a way Adult Swim uh, did not as much. Adult Swim was so supportive. They just like didn't green light more, more episodes. (laughs) No network for, for comedy is more supportive than adult swim. I mean, they just, they're like the Holy grail. I mean, I, this stuff didn't end up on air, but before soft focus, there was like this other show that I was trying to make. And actually he from that show ended up working on indefensible. Um, and, uh, there was a thing we did where we were like trolling abortion protesters with my friend who was like a breastfeeding activist. And it's like one of the funniest things I've ever scene and it just didn't end up in the show for a variety of reasons but adult swim was like fearless to a point that no no they did there were things i wanted to do that they were like you shouldn't do that it's not safe and and they were right and they were right so i they were trying to protect you um i loved seeing you as the bartender in palm springs do you have a a story from the set of palm springs that um, stands out yeah those guys are all great um so i'll tell you this story i um I got a script that came in. I'm very bad at auditioning. Um, I just can't audition. And that's why I'm not in things. (laughs) And the offer came in for me to play the bartender without having to audition. And it was Andy Samberg movie. And I was like, done, in, signed up. And then I read the script. And there was like a short scene where my character, it's like in the montage where like he's fucked everybody at the wedding. Like my character was like fucking him on a rock or something. There was some, I mean, it wasn't gratuitous, but it was just like, I don't know how to do that in a way that's actually good. Like a lot of comedians get like bit parts and then you're like, oh, that's a comedian in a bit part. And I was like, I can't hump Andy Samberg on camera, like convincingly in a way that's (laughs) like the most like embarrassing thing ever. And so I actually like backed out of the project and then they came back and they were like, why didn't she want to do it? And my rep was like, she doesn't really want to do like that scene. And they were like, we can change it. So then they like, let me like, kind of like work with them to like rewrite like the scene where I'm jerking him off in the car and talking about like a kid I hit with the car. You know, I once hit a guy with this car. Oh yeah? I don't think he ever walked again. Oh. <laughs> That's awesome that they worked, that they were willing to change it. It makes me almost teary-eyed to think about, and like Andy Sierra, the writer, and Max Barbacow, the director, are brilliant. They're never going to not be working in this industry. They were so cool and kind. Andy was so cool and kind. This woman, Becky Sloboder, she's one of the producers. 
that was just a great that there were that and Borat happening like at the same time. I recently like moved out to LA and I was like, oh, I miss New York so much. I still do miss New York. But those projects really like restored my faith in how cool LA could be. Yeah. I mean, they were probably like the two funniest movies of last year. So pretty good. (laughs) High bar. Um, finally, before I let you go, uh, I like to give comedians a chance to shout out other comedians, other comedy that they are enjoying. What's the last piece of comedy that really made you laugh? I mean, only murders in the building. Come on. Oh yeah. So good. And true crime. (laughs) Yeah. True crime. But also, I mean, Paul Downs and Lucia and yellow are like dear friends of mine from back in the day. And just to see them, and Jen Statsky. Yeah. I, I was so them. thrilled for them at the Emmys that they, that they yeah. took some of those. And they're the took some of, took some of Ted Lasso's wins. I felt like it was, uh, it was a lot oh, of yeah. Oh, well, Ted, I mean, all those guys. Ted are... Lasso's great too, but Hacks is, uh, yeah, now more I... of a Hacks guy. Yeah. I sound so LH. I'm like, everybody's great. These people are great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everyone's about? great. Um, but yeah. You've lost your New York edge already. I know. <laughs> it's hard to be. <laughs> it's LA. Here. LA is pretty great, though. You know, it's LA is not. Yeah, moments for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again for 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 coming back on the podcast. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Uh, thank you for having me. Okay, that is our show for today. Thank you so much to Jenna Friedman for being a rare repeat guest on the podcast. And you are welcome back anytime. Jenna's new show, Indefensible, premieres this Thursday, October 14th on Sundance TV and AMC+. I highly recommend you check it out. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.